Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. It is great to be with you. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you are with us this morning as uh, we come and we gather for worship and uh, sing to our God. Um, we are glad that you're here, whether this is your first Sunday or your 50th or your 150th. Uh, we are thankful that you're here because the truth is, is that every one of us is in need of the grace and mercy of our Lord. Every single one of us comes uh, in need of his glory to shine upon us. And so, uh, so if this is your first Sunday, if you're a guest or a visitor, know that uh, you are welcome here. We are glad that you are with us. Um, this morning, we are beginning a new series that's going to take us through the entire fall until we get to Advent, a series in 1 Peter, this New Testament book. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. 1 Peter is near the end of the Bible. If you're flipping in your Bible and you get to 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, move a little bit to the left. If you're in Hebrews or James, keep going. Um, you'll, you'll get to 1 Peter eventually. Um, if you're still having trouble there, you can just follow along in your bulletin. But um, uh, there's also a table of contents, content, what it, contents, I'm sure, in your Bible. But uh, 1 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. It was written in around uh, 65 A.D., and it was written to a group of churches in Asia Minor. We're going to hear these churches listed uh, very shortly uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, these other churches in this area. And Peter's writing to these churches because these particular churches in this area are experiencing a certain level of persecution. Uh, they're going through trial and difficulty. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them in their faith. He's writing to them, and we are now recipients of this letter to us, so that we would have hope. So that in the midst of trial in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of living in this world, we would be people of hope. And so let's go ahead and read First Peter. We'll read the first nine verses of chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you receive, though now for a little while, or excuse me, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God and our King, your word tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, it endures forever. And it is that enduring word that we are in need of this morning. 
And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and enliven our hearts so that we would receive your word and that we would live in light of it. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Home is where the heart is. That's such a wonderful phrase. Home is where the heart is. Uh, this is uh, a phrase that gives us great comfort. It's a phrase that uh, shows up in our home, in my home, because a couple of years ago, our first Christmas here in Roanoke, one of y'all, um, a member of our church, gave us a little wooden shadow box. And in the box is a wooden cutout of the state of Virginia. And on the state is written that phrase, home is where the heart is. And right where Roanoke is on the map, there's a heart. <laughs> it's great. It was such a wonderful first present as we came to Roanoke. Home is where your heart is, but it's, it's such a great comfort because home is that place that we find comfort, where we find care and love. Home is supposed to be that place where we're known and where we're welcomed. Right? Home is where the heart is, but it also means that home has our heart. Right? So much so that when we leave home, maybe when we go off to college for the first time, maybe when we are transferred because of a job, when we leave home, we say things like we left a part of our heart in South Carolina or Georgia or California or wherever it might be that home is. We left a part of our heart there right? because that's where our home was. Right? And when we say that, we're expressing that recognition that to leave home, to leave the comfort, the safety of that place that we have known, to move to a place that is unfamiliar can make us feel as though we are foreigners in a foreign land, right? I mean, you show up and you start to use words that, that no one else knows. When I moved from Canada to South Carolina, no one knew that a Chesterfield was a sofa. <laughs> it is. <laughs> No one knew what a toque was, those woolen hats, you know, that you wear at Christmas or winter. In South Carolina, those are called toboggans. Well, a toboggan is a wooden sled, thank you very much, not, not what you wear on your head. Or when people move here, you know that they're not from here when we interact with them, and they say things like, I can't wait to go hike McAfee's Knob. It's spelled McAfee, but we all know that you really pronounce it McAfee's, of course, right? There's an A, a silent A, a hidden A, an invisible A between the M and the C. So we call it McAfee's. Or, or when you're driving along the interstate and they say, I've, I've never been to the great city of Buchanan, but we correct them and say it's Buckhannon, right? When they say these sorts of things, we know they're not home. <laughs> we know that this has not been their home. And when we're the ones who have been corrected, like Kat and I have, it's not bought a tort, it's bought a tot. Um, it reminds us that we're not home. It reminds us that we're not here. Right? It reminds us that this is a place that is very unfamiliar to us. And even though we may wear the clothes that everyone else wears and we speak the same language, at least the basic parts of the language, that we can feel like we stand out. Like, we don't fit in. I mean, you know what this is like. You've experienced this before. Even if you've lived your entire life in Roanoke and you have never once stepped foot outside of southwestern Virginia, you know what it's like to not feel at home. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian, you're not home. The truth is, is that if you are a Christian, you are actually what Peter calls an exile. You are a foreigner living in a foreign land. 
That's what Peter said, right, in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. Now, most modern commentators understand that word exile to be a metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor referring to the experience of living in a land that is not your own. He's invoking this image of Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God. You remember Israel, they were sent out into exile, and so they lived in a land that wasn't their home. They lived in a place where they stood out, where they sounded different, where their practices were very different. And every single day they were reminded that this is not my home. And Peter's saying this is not just true of the Old Testament people of God, but this is true of the church, it's true of us. That we are exiles in this world. That's the image that Peter is applying to who we are. We know the language, we know the customs, we know the way that things work, but we are an exilic elect. That's what Peter says. We're not supposed to feel fully at home in this world. So what, what does that mean, though, for us? Like, how are we to live as foreigners in a foreign land? How are we to live as exiles in this world? Well, that's basically the entire, that's the question that the entire book of 1 Peter is trying to get at. That, that Peter is writing this book teaching us how it is that we are to live as foreigners in a foreign land. And more specifically, these, these first nine verses are telling us that as we live as exiles, we are to live as a people of hope. A people of hope. Verse 3 says that we have been born into a living hope. The Czech playwright Václav Havel, who was also one of the leaders against the Soviet oppression in uh, Czechoslovakia, he once said that hope is a condition of the soul. It is not a response to circumstances in which you find yourself. It is a condition of the soul, an orientation of the spirit. So how is our spirit to be oriented? What does hope look like in the people of God? How are we to live as people of hope? We hear it in verse 8. Peter tells us how we are to live. He says, though you have not seen him, Jesus, he's referring to Christ there, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What he's saying is that the people of God, those who are called to live with hope, are to live by loving and believing and rejoicing. Now, these virtues, they're not distinctively Christian simply because they are virtues in of themselves, by the sheer act of loving or believing, because even our non-Christian friends and the most secular of neighbors, they love their family Right? They believe in something. They rejoice at special occasions. Now, what makes these distinctively Christian is the object of these virtues. You see, Peter's not talking about a generic kind of love or a simple belief. He's not talking about a casual rejoicing for Peter and for us. These virtues are tied explicitly to the person of Jesus. He is our ultimate hope. He is the reason for why we live with hope. I mean, just take love, right? We, we are called to love him, it says in verse 8, though you have not seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. The, the object of our affections, the one that we are to give our hearts and our minds to, our, our very souls to, we have never seen. 
I mean, that is strange, isn't it, when you think about it? We have never seen him, and we cannot touch him, and we don't hear his audible word, and yet we love him. We give our hearts to him, that we are to love him more than anything else or anyone else. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He said to his disciples, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is he's, he's not saying that we are to despise our parents or our children. Kids, this, this isn't an opportunity for you to disobey your parents, right? Like, you can't just say, um, I don't want to go to bed or, or I broke my curfew because, Mom, I'm, I just love Jesus more than I love you. <laughs> you could try that. I don't think it would work. <laughs> no, what Jesus is getting at here is not a a way of diminishing other loves, but he's setting our ultimate love in its rightful place. He's saying that our entire hearts are to be given over to him. He's saying that our greatest affection, our deepest love, it goes to him. And so I wonder, I wonder if we were to take inventory of our lives, if we were to look at not just what we say with our mouths, but but what, what we think with our minds, how we live with our hands, if we were to take a f- serious inventory of our lives, if, if our lives would point and reflect that we love Christ more than anything else, would our lives reflect that we love Jesus more than our job? Would, would the way in which we go about our days reflect that we love Christ more than we love control? That we love Jesus more than making the honor roll or getting into that school. That we love Christ more than vocational success and climbing the ladder. Jesus, the ultimate love of your life. Because to be a people of hope, he must be. You see, to live as a distinctively hopeful people, it begins with loving Christ. He is the object of our love, but he is also the object of our belief. That's what verse 8 says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And when the Bible speaks of belief, it's not simply speaking about this intellectual assent, this acknowledgement of historical fact, because there are lots of people who are not Christians, who do not love Christ, who do not trust in him, who will admit that there was an actual historic figure who lived 2,000 years ago by the name of Jesus, and he lived in Nazareth, and he was a good moral teacher, and he died on the cross, and there are even some who would say, and he did bodily resurrect. They can acknowledge the historical truthfulness of those statements, and yet still not truly believe in Christ. I mean, after all, James says in the book of James that even the demons believe who Jesus was, but they shudder. Now, you see, when the Bible speaks about belief, it's speaking about something much deeper than simply intellectual knowledge. It's it's speaking about something far more all-encompassing than just data or information. When the Bible speaks of belief, it often ties belief to obedience, In fact, Peter said in verse 2 that he's writing this letter to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the, the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
It is out of obedience that Peter is writing this letter, and he is calling those who receive this letter to obedience as well. You see, if you want to know if you truly believe in Christ, you have to look at your life. Does your life reflect obedience to him? Because belief will manifest itself in obedience. So what this means is that we believe what Christ tells us to be true more than our hearts. You see, when there are times when our hearts and our desires, when our minds are in contradiction to God's word, we believe God's word to be true and not our hearts. It means that that we believe what Jesus tells us about what is just and right and what justice is to look like in his world and in his kingdom. We believe that to be true over and against what a political party or a political movement might say is just. It means that we believe what Christ tells us is right over and against whatever the current cultural trend or fad might be. That we believe him. And when we do this, when we believe him and we obey him, especially when it is in contradiction, when it differs with the beliefs of our culture, this means we will look different. This means that though we are inhabiting this world, we will look different from this world. That's what it means to be people of hope. That's what it means to live as inhabitants of this world, as exiles, that that we will actually look peculiar. We'll get into that a little bit later as we go through 1 Peter. But for now, what we have to see is that living out our hope means that we live with belief. We believe in Christ. We love him, but it also means that we rejoice. Look at the end of verse 8. Peter says, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's inexpressible. This means that it's not a normal kind of joy. It's not the joy that we feel at a birthday or an anniversary. It's not the joy that we'll have tomorrow morning when we awake and don't have to go to work and we can eat hamburgers and and brats and do whatever else we're going to do with our day off. It's not that kind of joy. It is something much deeper. It is inexpressible. It's a joy that results in having our greatest needs and our deepest desires met. It's a joy that only comes through God himself. The Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, once said that to praise God is the desire of man, and he is absolutely right. That God has created us so that we would would desire him. We would praise him. We would rejoice at him. But what's fascinating, what's unique about this is not not even the, the person, the object of our rejoicing, but the context in which this rejoicing occurs. Look at verses 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? The context of our rejoicing? It's in the midst of trial and in the midst of difficulty. Remember, he's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith, and he's saying, you rejoice in the midst of it. How can he say that? How can he say that we rejoice 
when we come through trial. Because in the midst of difficulty, as we go through trial, as we come out of it by God's grace, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. This reminds me of the parable of the sower. You remember Jesus gave this parable in Luke. It's actually in all the Gospels, but... But Jesus uh, told this parable of a sower who went out with seed and he scattered the seed on the four different soils. Some of you know this, sandy soil, thorny soil, rocky soil, good soil. And of the rocky soil, remember, it took root and it grew up very quickly, but then over time it withered away. And when Jesus was explaining the parable, he said this, And the ones on the rock were those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Do you hear the warning that's implicit in Jesus' statement? That the joy that began when they first heard, as soon as trial or difficulty or hardship arose, that joy was gone. They were shown to be rootless. They had fallen away. The implication is that for the Christian, that for the Christian, that when we experience trial, and that by God's grace we persevere through that trial, we will experience a joy that is inexpressible because through that trial and through that difficulty, our faith has been found to be true. Now look, this, this doesn't mean we go looking for difficulty. <laughs> like, we, we don't take on a martyr complex, Okay? It simply means that when we experience this difficulty, we have faith and we believe that God is actually using this time to melt away the dross. That God is using this in our lives so that he would be praised and glorified. We may not know how this will work out, and yet we believe that he will. I mean, that's what Peter did. So it's one thing to talk with great platitudes of when trial comes, when difficulty comes, I will never fall away, right? I, I will be rooted firm, right? It's, it's easy to talk that way. But what about when trial really comes? What about when difficulty really arises? Well, Peter, in Acts chapter 5, do you remember he and John are preaching the gospel, They're going from place to place. They're proclaiming the truth of Jesus, that he died and he rose again. And because of his proclamation of the gospel, the religious leaders come and the religious leaders throw him in jail. And when he gets thrown in jail, they come to him and say, you got to stop preaching the gospel. But Peter and John, they say, well, whether we should preach the gospel or not, that's up to you to decide. But, But as for us, we're going to keep proclaiming the truth. Basically, you can't quiet us down. And so he goes out and he continues to preach. But do you remember what it says? As they left that place, it says they went rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing that they had been dishonored because their dishonor was because they trusted in Christ. Their dishonor was because they were proclaiming the truth. They weren't rejoicing because they were dishonored because of their political opinions. And they weren't rejoicing because they were dishonored because their rights had been infringed upon. They were rejoicing because they were dishonored for the name of Jesus. That's how they could go out rejoicing. Because they knew, they knew that Christ was their first love. Because they believed Christ more than they believed this world. 
That is the only way that in the midst of trial or difficulty, we as God's people, we as people of hope, will be able to rejoice. Well, how can we have this hope? If this is what hope looks like, if it looks like rejoicing and it looks like believing and it looks like loving, how how do we embody this? How, How does this get within us? We live with this kind of hope in exile because of the reason for our hope, because of the new life that is ours. I mean, look what Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have new life. We've been born again. That's what Peter says. Now, the Bible is very clear. The Bible says that we are in need of this rebirth, right? That we are actually born in death, right? That Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but but that by God's grace, he has made us alive. That because of what Christ has done, the sprinkling of his blood and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that we are made new. Right? Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's who you are now. That if you are trusting in Christ, you are the reborn. You are no longer dead. You are born again, people of hope. That's your identity. That's who you now are. And this is the work of God. That's what verse 3 said, right? He has caused you to be born again. He causes this to happen. We actually have nothing to do with it. We don't get to decide. We don't get to pick. And and this makes actually a lot of logical sense if you think about it. Because um, how much say did you have over your natural birth? Like, Like not as the mom or dad, like giving birth, right? Like we can schedule those now, right? Around our vacation or jobs and stuff like that. But but like as the baby. Anyone consult with you, like who you want your parents to be, where you want to be born, uh, what, what city, what country, what time period, you know, like, did, you know, maybe the 1950s would sound pretty good, or, or the 1600s, I, I don't know, like, you, no one asked me, no one asked me, no one asked you, and the same is true for your new birth, for your spiritual birth, that left to yourself, you would still be dead. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he didn't leave us to ourselves. But instead, he caused us to be born again. That's why Peter can call us the elect exiles. God has chosen to make us new. Now look, do we respond with hope? Absolutely. And and are we to live with obedience? Yes. But even the ability to hope... And the ability to respond, it is a reflection of God's enabling new birth. That he took those lungs that were lifeless, that had no air, and he breathed new life into them. That he took a still heart and he gave it beating. Gave us new life. This is what God did. This is why we can live with as people of hope, because God has given us new life. But It's not just because of the new life. It's also because of the life that we will one day have. An inheritance that is guaranteed. That's what Peter says. Look at verses 3 through 5. 
He says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then verse 4, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says that God is guarding our salvation and he is protecting it so much so that Peter uses these three different images that our new life, it's imperishable. That means it can't be destroyed. That, that the inheritance that awaits us, heaven, that will one day come, it's undefiled. It can't be corrupted. That our salvation, it is unfading. It will not decay. That that's what awaits us. This is why in the midst of being a people in exile, we can have hope. Because our future is sure. See, we look towards the future and we know what our inheritance is to look like. What it will be like when it comes. Now, I've, I've sometimes heard people say this phrase, and I'm sure you've heard it too, that that, that person, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have y'all ever heard that? Come on, you've heard it. Of course you have, I've heard it. And, uh, and I understand the sentiment behind it. I can appreciate the sentiment behind it, right? It's basically getting at, like, if, if you think too much about heaven, then you're just going to want to retreat from this world. They don't think too much about heaven because then you won't be present in this world. And so we'll just kind of create these little enclaves, these cloistered communities of Christians where we can just kind of protect ourselves until heaven comes, right? We'll, we'll kind of go and reach forward into the future and bring heaven now and, you know, heaven will be a place on earth or something like that. I think that's how the song goes, but I understand the sentiment behind it. But the truth is, is that that though there might be some who wouldn't want us to go there in our minds, that's exactly where Peter goes. And actually, that's where the New Testament goes an awful lot. It is constantly pointing us to heaven. It's constantly putting before us what Christ guarantees. Because when we know what our future entails, it doesn't cause us to throw up our hands in dismay at the world and the people around us and to remove ourselves from this world. It actually causes us to live with hope today. Our future enables present obedience and present hope. It's kind of like in Back to the Future. You remember that movie? Wonderful 1980s movie, Back to the Future. Marty McFly. It's 1985, but... He has his friend, Doc Brown, who has created a time machine, a DeLorean, right? Kids, a DeLorean is a 1980s sports car. Um, and so, uh, so uh, he's created this time machine of this DeLorean, and, and through a series of strange events, Marty is transported back to 1955. And so he's living 30 years before his own time, and so he, he needs to get back to the future, right? And so he finds Doc Brown, the 1955 version of Doc Brown, and he convinces him he really is from the future. And, you know, uh, he talks about the flux capacitor, and that's what puts it over the edge. And Doc finally believes, you know. And so they're trying to go about getting Marty back to the future, back to 1985. And, and Marty knows what awaits him in 1985, his girlfriend, his family, his terrible 80s clothes. But, but also he knows that, uh, that what awaits him is on the night in which he'll be transported back, is Doc's murder. 
that his buddy, Doc Brown, is going to be killed in the night in which he gets sent back. And so throughout the movie, as they're trying to figure out how Marty's going to get back to the future, Marty's trying to convince Doc to hear about the future so he can take preparations and, and know and, and so he can stave off this murder. But Doc will have nothing to do with it. So finally, Marty writes him a letter, and he hands it to him, but Doc takes the letter, and he rips it up because it's going to mess up the space-time continuum, and who knows what might happen then. So Marty decides, well, I'm just going to go back a little bit early. So he goes back a little bit early, and remember the, the series of events occurs again, and, and he can't make it to the parking lot where his buddy was murdered, and he sits up on the hill, and he sees as Doc Brown is killed. He was too late. And so he rushes down to the parking lot and he's kneeling beside his friend, Doc Brown, who's been murdered. He's crying and he turns and the camera fixes on Marty's tear-stained face and in the background we see Doc sit up. <laughs> Sorry if I just gave it away, but it, I mean, it's 1985, spoilers are okay at this point, right? <laughs> Doc sits up and he rips open his shirt and he reveals that he's wearing a bulletproof vest. And Marty's like, how did you know? How could you? And he pulls out the letter that we thought he tore up. He knew the future, and it changed the way he lived in the present. And friends, we know what our future entails. We know that there is a day coming when we will receive God's promised inheritance. And we know that there is a day coming when the fullness of our salvation will come to bear. And we know that there is a future where our hearts will find their true home. And this knowledge of that future day, it enables us as we experience trials and difficulties. That future day, it enables us to live as exiles in this world. That future day enables us today to live as people of hope. Let's pray. Our God, that is what we ask, that you would enable us to live out of our new life as people of hope in the midst of this world. Allow us to be mindful of that day that will one day come when you, Lord Jesus, will make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth, when we will dwell with you and the trials and the difficulties that we experience in this world will be no more. We long for that day. And we ask until it comes that you would enable us, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would help us to love and to believe and to rejoice over you as people of hope. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.